The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 10th of March. Associate Professor Lucette Sizik and Claire Ramsden discusses the cognitive impairment that can be associated with COVID-19 with olfactory disturbances as an early indicator of cerebral involvement. The resolution of olfactory function does not mean the cognitive impairment will resolve. It is important to recognize patients with COVID-19 cognitive impairment and refer them to a neuropsychologist for assessment and help in management. Professor Sisik, tell us about yourself. All right, thank you very much for the invitation first. I think those, I'm, I'm really um, looking forward to be part of this podcast. I think it's, it's a really important initiative. So I am a, a neuropsychologist. My training is mainly in um, HIV and then recently because of my expertise in um, uh, this infectious disease, I also got interested into COVID-19. And so I'm currently based at the School of Psychology at the, the University of New South Wales. And I'm, I've also have a, a position uh, as a neuropsychologist at St. Vincent's Hospital in the uh, research unit. And what about you, Dr. Ramsden? Hi, thank you. Um, so I'm a clinical neuropsychologist by training. So I, I do a little bit of practice, but at the moment I'm working as the Deputy Director of Allied Health at the Tasmanian Health Service here in Nipaluna in Hobart and mostly working in that kind of setting. So I'm really interested in the impact of, of things on our systems and our healthcare systems. Thank you. Now, Professor Sisik, I've got a really interesting question for you. I understand that you've done some work looking at the association between olfaction changes and cognitive difficulties. I've never really tied them together before. So can you explain it to me? Right. So I think the reason for us to do that is because, as people probably know, there is a, a really um, um, strong sort of prevalence of olfaction changes in people who are diagnosed with COVID-19. So I think it's uh, very early on uh, in the epidemic, it was uh, recognized as one of the main symptoms uh, on how to uh, differentiate uh, COVID from uh, other uh, type of respiratory infection. And so early on, there was some uh, neurologists and uh, uh, neuroscientists who recognized that some of the olfactory change may actually, may actually uh, be more serious than just uh, sort of a, a local inflammation of the uh, nasal epithelium. And so there was some early work that showed that some uh, uh, nervous cell in the nasal epithelium uh, could be infected. And there was the worry that the virus could, could retrotraffic to the olfactory bulb. And uh, uh, that way the uh, olfactory changes would not be only a sort of a local phenomenon, but would be uh, underlying um, the infection of the central nervous system. And so um, these, those work have been only partially sort of um, confirmed because it is actually quite hard to measure SARS-CoV-2 in, in, in the brain tissues. 
And there was some work that showed that uh, the viral load of the virus is not associated with the level of brain injury. So it's, it's actually not that simple, but there's been some um, case study that showed that the uh, olfactory bulb and the uh, respiratory centers were in, are, are being involved by um, um, SARS-CoV-2. So I think that's why uh, at first uh, uh, people started to think, well, if this, this level of um, olfactory change at the central, in the central nervous system, there is the possibility that uh, to some extent, uh, the virus will also impact other brain areas. And uh, this, is, this is what's happening to some extent, but what is thought today is that it's actually mostly the inflammatory response that's responsible for uh, the um, issues that people may have in terms of cognition and olfactory changes. So, I mean, so, so in, in other words, so the fact that olfactory changes can be concomitant to some cognitive changes is the reason for why they need to be explored together. So if I'm understanding what you're saying is that um, there is evidence that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus can affect the olfactory bulb and that the, what you're saying is that the um, cognitive difficulties that you've managed to test early in the disease may well be due to inflammatory factors because when you test later on, the cognitive function uh, returns to normal. Is that right? No, so it's it's more it's more the, that the olfaction returns to normal. We actually in the adapt study we showed that uh, for some people, uh, unfortunately, the cognition does not return to as best as before the COVID illness. Wow. It's a minority of people, and we're trying to understand why. But so far, our uh, analysis show that it's an inflammatory process. So so there is the acute infection which produces a large inflammatory response. Yeah. And I think in some people, rather than uh, abating normally, that response cr uh, either becomes uh, chronic or upregulated, or it actually it, it goes back to normal and then rebound later on, it seems. Now that has a lot of practical implications in, in the clinical phase. Um, so Dr. Ramson, what, what kind of clinical applications would you make out of that observation? Clinically, it's a really complex picture that Lucette's painting. And I think changes in cognition associated with COVID, and she's really highlighted the difficulties we see. Things change over time. They change over time in different ways. So olfaction recovers at a different um, pace to cognition. Some, some people experience ongoing changes to cognition when they don't necessarily have a severe presentation of COVID. So their symptomatology might not have been severe, and yet they continue to have problems uh, in the longer term, we see patients, people who have COVID who in the acute phase have delirium and we know that has poorer outcomes when people have delirium. We know people who are admitted to the hospital tend to have more, are more likely to have cognitive impairment, particularly if they're intubated or if they're requiring ventilation. We can see similarities with things like acute respiratory distress syndrome or some of the critical care syndromes. So there's a number of factors, I think, that, that come into play clinically. And then we need to also consider the person sitting in front of us. So do they have some predisposition to having cognitive difficulties anyway? Have they had a historic brain injury or a stroke? Have they got some changes in mild cognitive impairment anyway that might predispose them? So clinically, it really makes assessment of cognition in these patients quite tricky and quite um, a, a difficult area to unpick over time, particularly when we're looking at throwing everything in the bucket at the moment, but the long COVID, um, so post-acute 
um, symptoms of COVID that we can see in those sort of uh, post-viral, post-inflammatory responses and what's happening there. And I don't think we fully understand some of those yet either. I'm not sure if a lot of us have been asked to assess our patients' cognitive function uh, if they return and say that they've been hospitalised for COVID. Is that something you would, both of you would recommend? Absolutely, as a clinician, I would screen, definitely. And I think that there's some reasonable evidence that people, particularly who are hospitalised with COVID, have some ongoing, what we'd call high-level difficulties. They're probably not struggling to do basic functional tasks, but fatigue, difficulty with their attention, um, things, slower processing speed, um, concentration, those kind of issues. Lisa, would you would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree. And, and I think I would... I would... I would um, expand it further. I think from a general practice point of view, I think any person with a chronic condition who starts to complain of some cognitive change, even if it doesn't look like, you know, they're really deteriorating and they're talking about mild changes, I think to be on the safe side, I would definitely do some, co some level of cognitive screening. And then if this level of cognitive screening is positive, then I would uh, go further for a standard neuropsychological assessment. Because uh, it's, it, it reminds me the story with HIV, with multiple sclerosis. It took quite a few years for the clinician to be convinced, you know, with, with those kind of um, partially treated sort of uh, condition and mostly chronic condition, I think diabetes would be another one. And now there's COVID-19, long COVID, that some of the mild cognitive changes are actually due to the illness. It's actually, like um, Claire explained, it's actually uh, difficult to, uh, uh, um, it's, they are complicated patients, and it's difficult to link the illness directly to the cognitive change, but that's why we need to look longitudinally, and also that's why we have to sort of um, have a, a kind of a preventative or early detection type of a framework in mind. And I think when people do start to complain about uh, these type of things, or even if the doctors start to think some changing that are unusual, I don't think it should uh, be seen as a half, you know, it's probably, you know, uh, they're just being sad today or, you know, they'll get better tomorrow. No, I, I think it is actually what my experience in HIV and other chronic condition is actually often it is the start of something. And what's complicated as well is that even if it's the start of something, those conditions tend to fluctuate over time. So actually for the patient, it's not so much a diagnosis that's going to be uh, so you have cognitive problem because of COVID. It's, it's not going to be like, oh, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. It just does not happen that way. It's more complicating that, that people have to tend to have episode of difficulty rather than deteriorating. Although if people have already a pre-existing condition, like Claire was saying, especially dementia, we tend to see that um, the COVID was actually uh, a cognitive uh, difficulty linked to COVID will actually compound, uh, you know, uh, the... The, the current uh, neurological disorder. But I just, I just wanted to add one thing about olfaction because actually there's new research showing that olfaction is a predictor of dementia. So it's, it's relative recent research, but there's, there's quite a lot of good research um, that is showing that uh, several neurological disorders, including Parkinson's disease, when we backtrack a few years before the, the disease start to be you know, clinically evident, uh, people started often to have olfactory changes first. So I think maybe that's why also because COVID is a respiratory disease, but I think that's why I think uh, changes in olfaction should not also lack cognition. They should be uh, clinically investigated because they, they are actually quite significant in terms of brain involvement sometimes.
I'm coming from all sorts of angles here, uh, Lucette. It's really incredibly interesting. Uh, let me just see if I can get this right. You really expanded this whole picture by saying that any patients with a chronic disease, um, including things like Parkinson's or diabetes, they tend to have um, cognitive changes that we have to, if you like, assess and not take it as just normal or... In fact, patients don't often come uh, with diabetes and actually tell us um, that they actually have perceived some cognitive changes. And it's never been the case that GPs would just routinely assess, if you like, the cognitive function for our patients with chronic disease. So the first question is, should we? And the second one is, if we do, um, what battery of tests uh, should we be using? Because, you know, the tests that GPs use are fairly insensitive. And I'll just leave that with you to, to think about. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, this is something that I've worked on in HIV for quite a few years. HIV now is a treated condition and we hopefully will be in the same situation with COVID. Uh, I mean, there's the vaccination as well. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, it's not the majority, but it's a minority and it's, it's, not, an, a, it's not a very small minority, but it's a minority of, of patients who have chronic conditions such as diabetes, HIV, COVID, and all the, 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 the other chronic infectious diseases such as um, hepatitis C virus when it's not treated but also um, uh, the other one where people don't know exactly what's going on with fibromyalgia and those sort of things. Some of those people can also start to complain of some cognitive difficulties. And what I'm saying is that rather than uh, assuming that the, those cognitive difficulties are the sort of the proxy of, uh, of, of mental health issues, mm -hmm. I think they should, be, they should be investigated per se, because there's already so much work to do, you know, in terms of uh, assessing dementia in general. Mm -hmm. But even for chronic condition, we know that chronic condition, especially when there's, there's accumulation of comorbidities, people are likely to experience some cognitive problems. Yep. And so they come to, to the doctors to try to objectify if they're really experiencing something. And it's often the attitude that these kind of complaints are going to put under the, the umbrella of mental health issues and, you know, because those people are relatively young. So what I'm trying to say is that we should try to change our mindset thinking that when someone has a chronic condition, it is actually uh, not rare. It's not also super common, but it's not rare that some people can experience episodes of cognitive difficulties. And so I think for them to objectify their difficulties, knowing how severe it is, if it's severe at all, it might not be, most of the time it's quite mild, and also understanding if it's progressive or not, what's the under, underlying explanation with some more uh, neurological investigation is actually one way to sort of uh, preemptively deal with um, you know, any progression or management plan. It's just another facet of health that uh, I think we should, we should think uh, more often rather than thinking, oh, it's mental health. Oh, that's made it very clear. Um, again, what screening tools should GPs use? Um, well, I can pick that one up a bit. I mean, I think you nailed it really when you said the screening tools that you use are pretty insensitive, and they are because they're just screening tools and it's, it's quite tricky to get um, a screening tool that's sensitive enough to pick up sort of high-level attentional difficulties or something like that, particularly in a young person, particularly in a, a high-functioning person. So I think, you know, there are some, some fairly 
well-known tools that GPs use, like the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the Minimal and things like the Adam Brooks Cognitive Exam, which you can access, but they're probably more suitable for older people. They're probably pretty, the discrimination is a little, they're a little insensitive. I would say that realistically, if you've got concerns, if the patient has concerns about cognition and they can talk to you about those and describe the functional impact of them, potentially you don't really need to screen as a GP. You need to find a pathway that someone can assess thoroughly because even if you screen and you find an issue, you're not going to be able to work out what that is. Is it cognitive impacts of a mental health condition? Is it the chronic condition? Is it medication? Is it sleep? Is it, is it one of the many, many things that it could be that's affecting that high-level cognition? Um, so I would say you would just refer, and actually screening in these people is really difficult. So in my research now at UNSW and St Vincent's Hospital, we're trying to, we've been trying to implement screening at the level of the um, uh, general practice. So we've done a study that worked quite well in HIV, but the general practice in question was is really well resourced. Mm. And so we had also to, to include some training and all of that. So it's 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 not easy to implement, but let's just say that our study was successful. So it was it was it's actually possible. So, but the type of cognitive screening we're talking about are computerized cognitive screening that involves you know a very quite sensitive measure in terms of the speed of uh, speed of thinking. And so um, uh, they actually can detect quite early if um, if there are some you know major change in 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 those kind of function. So I've, I've actually this is the same screen that I've used for my COVID nineteen studies. And at the beginning, I was because COVID was a new condition. I wasn't sure if it was going to work, but actually uh, it worked quite well to detect even mild uh, cognitive deficits. So um, I just think it's possible to. Uh, screen cognitively at the level of the general practice, but it's something that has to be uh, properly implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I think we, we, we need to find ways, we could need to find ways to do that. And so one of the way of the future is certainly asking people to do certain uh, screening at home. So there are some tests nowadays that can be done at home. So people don't even have to be at the clinic to do that. So you could refer them a test with a, a link over a, a, a web interface and they would do the test. And then those tests come back with a, a simple report mm-hmm. and you're able to interpret that. And then I would not make dramatic decision with that kind of screening. But the only thing that I would say is that if people are really performing fine, I would just you know wait and see. And if people show really uh, performance, because those those new screening interpret the performance right away. So if the performance is really below uh, a level of um, you know a, a norm compared to the age, gender, and education, then I think it warrants further investigation. That's the way I would see it. Mm-hmm. I would see it as a step to do we go further than that. And then really, I think what Claire was trying to say as well is that what's really important it's still you know, the, the same as usual is to take a really good history. And when you know your patient as well, your mm-hmm. clinical acumen, if you can see that something has changed in the patient, mm-hmm. that would be that, that would be also the decision. That would be the way to, um, you know, if you have a patient that's quite sharp and you, you know they, you know the way they usually function and they really report change in the cognition, then you, I would act uh, even without just training on this. I heard earlier on that some of the things you con- you're concerned about are fatigue, attention, and slower processing speeds. So, Claire, if I had a patient coming in 
and telling me about the concerns they had, if they mentioned the words fatigue, attention problems, or that they're not thinking quickly enough, that might alert us to some of the issues to follow up. What are the other common issues that patients bring up when they're really talking about a cognitive issue? Um, someone mentioned things like brain fog and other things. Can you tell us yeah. what else do we look for in such patients? Yeah. Well, I think those, those words that you've used are really uh, key. So brain fog, um, I don't think, it's, um, I don't, um, so that's the type of, uh, I'm going to relay the type of um, <coughs> symptoms that I see in the adapt study. So brain fog, I'm not as sharp as usual. Uh, I'm fatigued. Um, I need to sleep much more than I used to. Uh, when I walk a flight upstairs, you know, I'm really tired and I didn't have that before. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, are, um, I can do the same thing, you know, as I used to, but it takes me longer, especially when it has a high cognitive demand. Uh, the other one that we just uh, seeing more frequently is people complaining of olfaction. So they've, they've, their olfaction has recovered, but then a few months later they come back and they said the smell is, a sh- uh, the quality of the smell has changed. So they're actually experiencing what's called paranosmia. So they're smelling things that do not exist, or the, uh, which is phantasmia, sorry, phantasmia. And or they, they, um, they, when they smell something, it smells something, they smell different. Okay. And so we've seen that. So that w- I would act on that. I would send someone like that to a neurologist. Anybody who complains about their memory, that their memory is not as, as good as usual, I would go as well. I would, I would tend to uh, refer to a neurologist. Uh, so the one that I've seen that I'm rarer, but I've seen a mo- change in their movement, capacity for walking. And uh, um, the last one was uh, difficulty to find words. Mm-hmm. That, that, that would be the one, yeah, difficulty to find words. So so the, it's it's a bit like, unfortunately, those things can be quite unspecific. A lot of, like Claire was saying, a lot of things can cause that. But in someone with COVID, who before was a very healthy person, especially when they're young, and you suddenly have those changes, yeah, that would definitely warrant some investigation. But Sam, I've seen some older women, for example, who uh, were doing fine, they may, have, they may have already started to have a bit of difficulty in memory because of the age, but they were, they were still doing fine. And then suddenly with COVID, all of this has been precipitated. So that's someone I would refer to a neurologist as well. I just add two other things that I think come up really commonly that people um, disregard. And one is what we would think about in terms of dual tasking. So doing more than one thing. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so maybe, and, and not necessarily multitasking as we think about it in our daily lives, but something like trying to do a task and having the television on and being distracted by the television or driving and talking or all those things that put where you've got your attention's focused on something but being distracted by another thing. I think that that's a, something that people often report changes. Um, and the other thing is that, that we hear people talking about are errors that they make when they're making errors of sort of everyday routine actions. So putting the, you know, tipping the hot water into the jar of coffee instead of into the cup, putting the, the dinner in the, in the fridge, and, but more than usual. Everybody does these things and we all do it more yeah. than we're tired, but, but doing it such that it's starting to cause problems. So I think yeah. that that's sort of... Um, more functional expressions of when people are experiencing those sort of more subtle cognitive changes that you can really start to collect as evidence a little bit. And, and something also that's very good, Claire, like what you, the example you've given, because they're really 
typical of those mild level of uh, cognitive deficits in, in this type of chronic illness. So it's never going to be someone like, oh, you know, I can't remember the, they, they, it's not someone who will suddenly not remember their life. It's, it's not like that. It's more subtle. But at the same time, what happened is going to be, it's, it's, it's those things that we usually do, we all forget things, but it's going to be more frequent. And it won't be only one or two days, it will last for months, for example. And it's, it becomes noticeable to oneself and, and other people as well. Yeah. You know, these are the sorts of things we can notice in general practice, because as you said, we do see our patients, we do know them, and we can see them struggling. I hear you said that you said that you need to refer them to a neurologist. That's for a diagnosis. How, where does a neuropsychologist come in? How, how does the path end up with a neuropsychologist and what can they do for these patients? Well, so my tendency to say the person should be referred to a neurologist because it's the way we function at St. Vincent's Hospital. So, uh, but the neurologist we have at St. Vincent's Hospital, one of my long-term collaborators, Professor Bruce Brew, uh, is, is kind of versed into understanding what's the role of the neuropsychologist already. So in other words, um, when we refer to him, he also knows that what we're requesting is a wider investigation, including a neuropsychological assessment. But personally, I like to refer to neurologists because if neurologists understand you know, this type of mild cognitive deficits in people with chronic infections or chronic conditions, uh, they'll understand that very often you have to do a multidimensional assessment. So mm -hmm. it's not only the neuropsychological assessment that will give an answer, that will have to understand what's going on. It's going to be also an MRI, it's going to be some blood tests and other investigation. And it's when putting all of that together that, that things will start to make sense. Right. I think as well, from a neuropsychology point of view and what we can contribute, it's not just the assessment and the information that leads to diagnosis, but it's also what you can do with that. What could you exactly. do in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of helping that person recover, helping that person get back to functional tasks really quickly um, that's sometimes a bit neglected. And I, I think, Lucette, you know, we, uh, you and I both happen to work in, in health services where there is access through to neuropsychology. It's fairly limited here in Tasmania, but I know in regional Australia, it, it can be really difficult to get access to a neuropsychologist, but really it's it's the, the gold standard in terms of being able to pull apart those really complex pictures that we see around cognition, particularly when somebody's got many factors that might contribute to cognitive change and the way that you would remedy or, or address those factors would differ depending on what you, what you decided the, um, the main cause of the cognitive change would be. Here's a tricky question. Will all neurologists refer on to a neuropsychologist? Well, I think if you clearly express in your referral, so Aaron, so it's interesting what you're saying. I really like your question because one of my uh, ex-colleague here at St. Vincent's Hospital, she's retired now, uh, was the clinical neurosurgeon for many years. She would often say she would receive referral from uh, uh, doctors and the referral did not contain enough history to understand why there was a referral. But I think if the GP clearly mentioned that a neuropsychological assessment would be needed. I think the neurologist will follow suit. There is, there is no reason why they wouldn't. And so I think it's really important for the community, for GPs and also patients to understand that a neuropsychological assessment is the first step to a management plan or a treatment and a treatment plan. So once you've done the test, then the neuropsychologist 
not only gives the feedback for the overall picture for the the neurologist, like Claire was saying, but what's really important is that a rehabilitation plan is put in place or cognitive remediation plan is put in place. And so this is from the feedback from patient. This is where, you know, they, they gain a lot from a neuropsychological assessment. When they have difficulty and first when they don't have difficulty, there's a reassurance process that, that, that happens, which is really important. But when they do have some cognitive difficulty, then the uh, neuropsychologists explain exactly what's going on in a feedback session. And they also um, give some um, remediation and rehabilitation strategies to uh, rem- uh, remedy uh, to some extent uh, to the deficits. They all sound like valuable, valuable things uh, our patients will need. But what I'm getting from you, and this is important, is that if I have a patient who's struggling with the symptoms we spoke about earlier, in my referral to the neurologist, it is probably necessary to say that it is, if appropriate, please refer for a neuropsychological assessment and help management. Is that something that we should say in our referral letters? I think you should, yeah. And you should say why, if you, if you, if you can. I think that would be the best. Yeah. Thank you. What do you think, Claire? Yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, because some neurologists, it depends who you send to, but some neurologists are have different connection to neuropsychology. It depends on their which area of expertise they have. Yeah, and it starts to normalize it as just a usual part of the process, rather than something you save for special. You save it when you've got someone who's really impaired, or you save it for when you've got someone who's who no one's got an answer to. That actually, this is this is really a useful. Um, clinical contribution in the general diagnosis of people with cognitive impairments. I think you're teaching us GPs to be finer and more sensitive instruments to pick up these sorts of changes and send them off for early intervention. That's that's exactly what we're saying, yeah. And that's where the field is going. And I think at the moment, I know there's been some controversy with the recently, um, you know, adopted um, uh, drug for uh, Alzheimer's disease, but there are so many other drugs in the pipeline uh, and hopefully some that are going to be positive. And so the, so the idea will be that it, it will change our practice. So rather than wait till people deteriorate till um, uh, we start to go, oh my God, you know, this is definitely dementia. The idea is to intervene way earlier. But yeah. the truth is that even for dementia, we already know that even without, you know, a curing treatment, we don't have that yet. But even without that, you know, the prevention actually helps people you know in many ways so but to have this level of prevention you need first you know to go through a diagnosis process the earlier the better yeah earlier the better and and really if you look at how we're now talking about mental and emotional health you know proactively asking and how are you you know how are you feeling about things <clears throat> we don't I think routinely proactively ask about how is your thinking, how is your cognition, you know, we leave it for quite a long time and we know that people are not necessarily going to raise that they've got concerns about with their GP if they're older, if they're concerned, if they're from, you know, a different cultural background, if if cognition is, is considered differently for them in their family, if, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's really scary. What if they take my license away? What if I can't work? What if I can't look after my kids? So sometimes we, I think we need to be the people asking the question rather than waiting to be told around changes to cognition. And the, the other role of neuropsychologists in chronic condition, including long COVID, the other role is really to uh, be able to discriminate between uh, the different sort of um, 
potential cause of cognitive deficits. Right. And so one of the main role of the neuropsychology, so when you, you request an assessment, you can really specify that. You, you can specify, do the cognitive deficit, is there a evidence for the cognitive deficit to be associated with uh, uh, sort of the COVID illness rather than, for example, a pre-existing uh, psychological condition? You know, I think I think that's our answer. Often the, the, the answer is really yes or no. It's always a bit more complicated than that. But that level of, if you want that level of nuance, this is neuropsychologists, that's what they do. Because we also assess mental health. Two things I'm looking forward to, uh, Lucette. One is that tests online, the screening tool online that you were talking about, it would be an amazing tool for patients and GPs to have. Mm -hmm. The second is just a thought that occurred to me when you mentioned that even in Parkinson's disease, uh, the sense of smell uh, is, can be affected early on. Uh, I wonder if ever in the future, when we are assessing uh, cognition, whether we have uh, going to have a standard set of olfactory tests, you know, little bottles with different smells that we subject our patients to, and, and it counts for something important. So I guess you, you last question first. So yes, actually, I mean, the people who work in the smell area, and I discovered that, you know, because I was in my area, but I discovered that working with COVID, you know, that, that they would want that. They would want, you know, having a quick screening test for, for smell because the smell and ear or hearing actually, you know, are two of the, the sensory um, um, conditions that are predictive of uh, cognitive decline in older age, okay? So it's not only Parkinson, it's just more of a general phenomenon. So at the beginning, people would think, oh, it's just aging, you know, people are getting older, but it, actually it's it's more, more complicating than that. Uh, for some of those uh, changes, when they go beyond a certain level, they're, they're actually predictive of uh, neurodegenerative processes. So that's why it's important to look at them. And then in terms of the... Uh, implementation of online uh, cognitive screening. Listen, there is a whole field of, you know, at, at the moment, let's just say it's uh, it's an ebullition, but we need to come back to implementing that in real care. Thanks. So there are tools out there, but uh, the implementation study needs to be done. So by implement study, I mean, what I mean is like concretely assessing with the people who are actually seeing the patients or so the GPs, the different doctors, all the different carers, assessing how we can implement those cognitive in real life, in a real setting. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the bit that needs to be done before we, we make that uh, large scale. And uh, because I think for every setting, there will be some tweaking to be done. And if people have to do those kind of tests online, they will have some, there's some ethical issues, there's some proprietary issues with the data. There, there are a lot of things to think about. But this is, it looks like this is the, the way of the future. Now, if we miss any important points along the way, it's been a most interesting discussion so far. Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would try to talk on, uh, if, if I may, but uh, at the same time, it's a little bit presumptuous, but a little bit on the, or I, can, I guess a message for people who have, who may have had experience COVID and who are worried about the cognition and, um, or they, they've, they've then noticed some physical changes they did not have before. I just think that, um, uh, they shouldn't, you know, suffer in silence and alone. Uh, they should go and see uh, their GP and uh, they can uh, try to uh, get a referral uh, to see a, a neurologist and try to explore more what's going on. There is, there is no reason to not to try to objectify their cognitive deficit. There may not be right away solution for it, but at least to have an understanding of where it's coming from and how to adapt to it, especially 
for people who are working age and who, who will worry necessarily because of the situation. So I think trying trying to kind of proactively, you know, trying to understand what's going on is actually be is from a patient perspective, it will be empowering. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I would advise them to do. The really interesting but also challenging thing as for healthcare workers, for clinicians and for our community, I think is is that we're just really not quite sure yet. This is a very multifaceted, really changing disease. So so we know that you're more likely to have some cognitive changes if you've had to be hospitalised. We know that more people, fewer people will be hospitalised now that we're getting more people vaccinated. We know that there are new variants coming. We don't really know what that's going to mean. We're not really sure about the longer-term impacts for people, although we know that quite a few, you know, reasonable proportion of people continue to have some symptoms beyond the time that they're infectious. So that that need to be flexible to really listen to our community at a, a sort of as a one-to-one level and really get to know people and their concerns and their complaints and take them seriously, as Lisette said, but also being really flexible about how we deliver those services so that we can make sure we're getting services and not just the diagnosis, but the the rehab and the restoration and the, the support to return to functional tasks, given that this is Unlike a lot of the things that we think about when we think about changes in cognition, this is a, a disease that's affecting our entire community, not just older people. Um, so we've got lots of people with lots of roles that need to keep happening, including people working in, in healthcare. Now, as we come to the end of the podcast, I wonder if both of you would give us some key and final messages for our listeners. Well, um, I wanna, first I want to say thank for this initiative. I think it's there's something that we need to do, neuropsychologists, and I want to thank uh, Dana Wong, who's, who's been, you know, critical in that endeavor. This, it is really important for neuropsychologists to make themselves better understood to the wider, um, you know, healthcare community and to the general community in general. I think I think there's been an attitude in the past where we're waiting people to come towards us, but I think we have to go towards people and then explain what we're doing yeah. and uh, um, uh, what's the benefit of what we're doing and uh, how we can uh, help, you know, uh, the care of people in the short term and the long term. And uh, and I'm really happy it's happening. And then the, the last thing I want to say again, you know, if you have had COVID and if you have had, if you think you're starting to have some uh, cognitive difficulty and you're worried and you're afraid, uh, just don't suffer alone in silence and try to go through this processing in neurologists and neuropsychologists, do some investigation and hopefully, you know, some answers will be given and that will alleviate some of, of uh, you know, uh, this uh, suffering in silence uh, uh, issue. Because every, the other thing is that I want to say every person is different. So if you try to, so for example, you meet someone who had COVID who never had cognitive difficulty because of COVID, well, that's, that's entirely possible. Okay, but it's possible to meet someone who's exactly the same story, but still have cognitive difficulty. And the reason is because our immune system is so individualized. And this is our immune system who's reacting differently to the virus. And that's why it's provoking some of those cognitive changes. And you, Claire? Well, I don't think I can top that, really. I think I agree. (laughs) Don't say that, Claire. (laughs) <laughs> we need say to. something about neuropsychologists we 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 need you you, you can say something nice because we need it in the community <laughs> we need well i did think i would say that i i agree in that as neuropsychologists you know looking being more engaged and being more um outward looking about things we're not we're not 
um, hyper specialists. I think we have a role to play in a lot of areas, but also we're we're a part of a much broader team. So we're, we're talking here about GPs and neurologists and neuropsychologists, but also speech pathologists working in language and OTs working in, in sort of occupation and function. And I think that we're part of a broader team and, and knowing our space in that team and what we can do. And just, I mean, if you're thinking about neuropsychologists and clinical psychologists, you know, we can work really well together to support people. I think there'd be very few people who've, had COVID-19 and have some cognitive changes as a result of it and don't find that distressing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that would be an entirely normal thing to have happen and having some support around that would be, you know, a, a really useful thing. But seeing us as just part of a broader picture, but a really essential, important part of that broader picture. And I would reiterate what, what Lisette has said about, you know, seeking help and seeking support um, if you're noticing changes and you've had COVID-19 infection or if you're noticing any, any cognitive changes that are persisting and they're unusual for you and I think that's the really tricky thing to for anyone else to know other than you is this unusual for you and then trying to find some answers for that. Well I thank you both for your time it's been very interesting speaking with both of you Lucette and Claire. Thank you very much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.